Welcome to the Sovereign Grace Church Sermons Podcast. Enjoy the sermon by Pastor Jason. Sovereign Grace Church is a Bible-based, gospel-centered church. Please enjoy. All right, so um, we finished up chapter 3 of the Gospel of John, and um, getting started in the fourth chapter of John, we come to another uh, interaction of Christ with somebody, and it seems like Christ is interacting individually with a lot of folks in his day, and seeing a lot of folks with different needs, but I want to just go ahead and get right into the text so that we can kind of break this down a little bit, and see what, uh, what God has to say to us through his word this morning. Um, now hear the infallible inspired word of God John 4 verses 1 through 15 now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples he left Judea and departed again for Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this word and for this interaction of Christ with the woman of Samaria. God, we pray that through this we may see your nature and your glory revealed, that redemption shall be clearly shown through Christ in this. Father, remove the veil that we may see these things. Holy Spirit, be a light to our feet and a lamp to our path with this word, that it may lead us to something in our hearts that is changing and redemptive. God, help us to not forget this. Help us to retain this and use this as we go through our lives. God, let it be something that is is new in our hearts to, to, to spring up that well. We thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, um, we have to kind of look at this based on what we've just read in John 3. As well, we don't want to go just into verse four and just think that everything that happened before didn't happen. We need to think about what happened in John three because Jesus 
in John 3 has just explained to Nicodemus the process of the new birth being how a man inherits the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus was a religious man. He knew the law, yet he still needed the gospel. He needed to know that he must be born again. In our text today, we are introduced to a much different kind of person, a woman of Samaria. And I think we should pay very close attention to this conversation that he has with this lady. Because I think we can learn something and we can see something very important about the gospel and what it means. First, though, in the introduction, we see uh, some important points that we need to look at. Um, first, let's, let's break down verses 1 and 2. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples. So, we're going to see another point on baptism here. We talked about baptism in chapter 3 some, so we're going to talk a little bit more about baptism in chapter 4. Jesus entrusted baptism to his disciples to do. It was ordained by Christ to do. Yet, we can take from the fact that it was not Jesus who was performing the baptisms, that baptism is not salvific. It does not impart salvation. Um, many so-called Christian religions have elevated the baptism to the level of salvation that in order to be saved, you must be baptized or baptized in a certain way uh, in order to be justified. Baptism is not justification. Justification comes by faith alone in Christ alone. And that's according to Scripture. We believe it is an ordained sacrament that we do follow Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And we do this as a, as a show that we are a part of the family of God. We do that. It is an important sacrament. But it is not saving us when we do that. So... Let's remember that, and I think we can clearly see that if Jesus is entrusting baptism to his disciples, that he's showing, hey, this isn't how I'm justifying, but it's important. We come to another uh, very interesting part of the introduction next, and some people think uh, some things about God that I believe are untrue. They believe that God is no longer sovereign. Some people think that he's just hands-off. Just letting it roll how it rolls. Let the, let the cards fall how they may. Some believe, and, and most of the time this isn't the Christian way of thinking, but some believe in chaos, that everything happens by chance. And some th think that things happen and God just somehow will work things out for you. That God will work it out for your good. If, if something bad just happens to happen, God is going to find a way to work it out. There are even those who believe that God must have a man's permission to do anything in this earth. And I would say that all of those thought processes are incorrect. Let's read verses 3 through 6. He left Judea and departed for Galilee. And listen to what it says in this verse. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. This set of verses definitely shows us that, that 
chance and happenstance isn't how things are happening. It said that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. It was ordained that he should do that. He was doing exactly what had been planned for him to do, for him to go through Samaria. He had to go that way. He goes directly to a place that Jacob had given to Joseph's offspring. Jesus is sitting in a very important place to the Samaritans. The Samaritans kind of revered this place because this is Jacob's well. Jacob dug this well. He, Jacob himself dipped water out of this well. And he's sitting there at the hottest part of the day and exhausted from his journey. And somehow, not by chance, a conversation happens. Let's read verses 7 and 8. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. <coughs> now, this isn't just a conversation starter, okay? This is very important. Because there is a history between the, the Jews and the Samaritans. And we'll, be, we'll begin to see a little bit more about how this thing goes. But basically, here's what happens. Jesus is asking her for, for a drink. And the history between the Jews and the Samaritans is that Jews worshipped at the temple in Jerusalem. And the Samaritans worshipped at Mount Gerizim. And there was, this wasn't just a little, oh, we'll worship here, you worship here. This was a, an, an argument between the Samaritans and the Jews. Not only that, the Samaritans only accepted the Pentateuch, which is the first five. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They only accepted that part of Scripture. They didn't accept any of the other writings. They didn't accept the prophets. None of that, which is a problem when you think about Messiah because sure, Messiah is shown in the first five, but those books, those, those prophet, prophecy books will show even more clearly who Messiah shall be. And the Jews accepted the full Old Testament. So there was a disagreement on what was Scripture and what wasn't Scripture between them. But probably worst of all for the Jews was this. How many of you have ever heard of the law that was written that um, Jews couldn't wear clothes that were a mix of cotton and wool? They couldn't wear a blend because they were not to blend. Everything was supposed to be separate. The Samaritans were actually a mixed race of Jews who had mixed with Gentiles. And that was probably worse to the Jews than anything else the Samaritans did. Because there was mixture. And they didn't believe in mixture. They wanted it all to be separate and holy. So the woman, in answer, says this. In verse 9 and 10, she says, it says, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then in parentheses it says, Actually, let's read just verse 9. Actually, in the parentheses it says, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You see, according to what we've just understood about the, the disagreement between 
these Samaritans and the Jews, we see that the Jewish people would consider Samaritans unclean by their standards. And I would say this, according to God's standard, all of us are, including the Jews. Knowing that, I think we can understand this conversation a little more clearly and that important phrase in parentheses says, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans because of what we just learned about them. This doesn't mean that they did not talk. It doesn't even mean that they didn't occasionally have business dealings with a Samaritan. <coughs> because it's clearly shown that they did, historically. What this actually means is that they could not eat or drink together because the Jews found the Samaritans to be unclean. And here's the important part to think about. The Jews would not share eating utensils, bowls and plates, or a cup with a Samaritan. And Jesus asked a Samaritan for a drink. He then uses her response as an opportunity to introduce himself to her. Let's read verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked and he would have given you living water. Now, this verse, though it seems short, is chock full of some important stuff that we need to cover. In Jesus' introduction, he is actually revealing some important things about who he is, about his true nature, about exactly who it is she's talking to. He first says this, he says, If you knew the gift of God, now, this is important, okay? God gives us so many gifts, right? We know that, that God is, it has blessed us very immensely in our lives with temporal things at times, truly. But there is one gift of God, and Jesus is speaking of that very specific <coughs> gift. It's the same gift we just talked about in, in chapter 3 with, with Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was, was a religious leader and a man who was super important, and he was one who tried to follow the law and be respectable in society, yet he needed to be born again. He needed the gift of God, which is eternal life. Now, Jesus is talking to a much different person. And we'll get into the significance of that more later. But Jesus is introducing to her a gift so great that it could change her life forever. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. A gift that is offered even to the worst of sinners is the gospel of Jesus Christ. No person, listen to me clearly when I say this, no person who has ever received this gift from Christ has ever deserved it in any way. It's a gift beyond measure. 
It's an absolute mercy from God that we would even get the gift of God, which is eternal life. Then Jesus says who it, who it is. So he's saying, if you knew who I am, the very question of that has been disputed throughout the centuries. The historic true church has done their best to defend who Christ is from many heresies throughout history. One of the ones that comes to mind is the Nicene Creed, is the Nice, the Council of Nicaea, when uh, the church came together, the bishops came together, and Constantine brought brought them together, is what is said, but actually it was the church came together, and Constantine was there. But what they were looking at was the fact that this Arian heresy had arisen, saying that Jesus was not God. They even made up songs which diminished Christ and said that he wasn't God in those songs. And one of the greatest things that happened at the Council of Nicaea since we're getting into the Christmas season is that is where uh, a man got up to testify on the behalf of Arius, the founder of the Arian heresy, and was diminishing Christ. And St. Nicholas stood up walked up to him and slapped him right in the face. And he was put in a he was put in a jail cell because he did it in front of the emperor. He shouldn't have done that. But he said that he could not allow a man to diminish his Lord anymore. He couldn't handle it anymore. So Saint Nicholas, Santa Claus, got up and smacked a dude for diminishing the deity of Christ. So all these heresies have tried to make Christ something else. We see that continuously today. People misrepresenting Christ, entire uh, so-called religions or so-called Christian religions trying to diminish Christ into something else. Christ is uh, this, Christ is that, Christ is Michael the Archangel, Christ is all these other things. And that's not what Christ is. Christ is who he says he is. So who is Jesus? Who is he? Some will say mistakenly, and you probably heard it, well, Jesus never said he was God. As was true with a few other places we've already read in John, this verse unequivocally proves that that statement is false. The first time Jesus says, I am, ego I me, he is saying, I'm God. But, but, you see, later in this verse, we hear him compare the gift of God to living water. And he's saying, basically, that living water is eternal life. And if we take the phrasing in this text grammatically, Jesus is saying that he is one who can give living water. So Jesus is the giver of eternal life. He gives the gift of God. Only God can give the gift of God. Therefore, Jesus is saying here, in no uncertain terms, I am God. God the Son, second person of the Trinity. He's telling her that he is the Messiah who has come to save his people from their sins. And since she's a Samaritan, we, we probably look back to 
Genesis 3.15 for her where it talks about the seed of the woman who is to come and crush Satan's head. Yet the woman gives a typical answer here. It's the same answer that we see everybody give in response to Jesus when Jesus speaks of spiritual things as he's trying to teach somebody a, a lesson about who he is or the kingdom. Let's read verses 11 through 12. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where, where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, and as did his sons and his livestock? So Jesus is talking about giving her the greatest gift in human history, the gift of eternal life through his death, burial, and resurrection. And she says, you don't have anything to get the water out of the well with. What are you talking about? She gives a temporal answer, much like Nicodemus did. We see this constantly throughout Scripture. Jesus gives a spiritual, powerful explanation of something, and we just can't comprehend it. And honestly, that still goes on. We still struggle with it today, and it's not, it's not just them who struggle with it. It's us. We look at these spiritual things given in the, in the Scriptures, and sometimes we put it to temporal things, and we need to, to, to stop doing that. We need to take Scripture as Scripture. It is God saying, thus saith the Lord. It's what, he's had, what He has to say. So she looks at the, at the physical. Jesus doesn't have a cup or a bucket. This is, a, this is physical water, and this is a physical where. How are you going to get the water out? Where are you getting this water from? Jesus answers, just as He always does, with patience and with joy and with love, and with immeasurable hope. He says, in verses 13 and 14, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. There is eternal life in Christ Jesus alone. And there is even more solid hope for us as we daily walk once we have eternal life. There's even more hope that comes along with it. There is a keeping that happens in that hope. There is a, a help to keep us in that hope that is in Christ. The Holy Spirit, Spirit dwelling within all of us who are in Christ he is our help. So even in the darkest of days, we have an unbelievable hope. We have unbelievable help in Him. For those in Christ, you see, this well doesn't run dry. It springs up within us. This is more evident to us through the spiritual disciplines of prayer, Bible reading and study, and church fellowship. That's why there is a joy and a hope in all those things. As we pray, we begin to fellowship more with our Savior. As we read and study the Word of God, we begin to learn more of Him. And then we come into church fellowship, which is a family joined together in Christ. And we begin to see the hope and the joy welling up within us. That living water is welling up within us to eternal life. It's showing us who we are in Christ. And it's only available 
to those who are in him. And then we come to a very telling statement by this, by this lady in verse 15. She says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. R.C. Sproul brought out some very interesting things about this woman. First, there's some things that we can look at based on historical data and what we know of how things were done in that time that can help us to see some very important things about this woman. First, she came alone to the well. In that culture, women would come in groups to the well. They wouldn't come alone. So they'd have maybe a, you know, somebody to help them or somebody to talk to or somebody to, 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 to be there with them to watch their back. You know, j- those different things. They would have a group of women to come, but she came all alone to the well. Secondly, she came at the hottest part of the day. Now, that's not how they did things which is probably why she came alone to the wells because she came at the hottest part of the day. In that culture, the women would come early in the morning or late in the evening when it was cooler and they would get enough water to last for the day. So she's waiting to the hottest part of the day to come. And we find out later in this chapter that she has had five husbands and is living with another man. So thirdly, she probably has a poor reputation. And that's evidenced by her answer in verse 15. Jesus has shown the religious leader Nicodemus how he must be born again to have eternal life. Now, he's sitting with a woman who is exceedingly sinful, who seems to be ostracized in her own community and in her own culture. And Jesus is doing something amazing. What's he doing? He is teaching her about the same gift that he taught Nicodemus about. I think her uh, reaction is, is very telling. And it should be our reaction to the wonderful grace and mercy. Let's read verse 15 again. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Give me this water. Lord, give me this amazing gift of eternal life so that I will forever be yours. I am filthy, I am a sinner, which we are, much like this woman. And truth be told, Nicodemus, even though he seemed like the the guy who was well put together, and was doing good and trying his best to be the, the religious leader and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the good guy. He was just like this woman. He was sinful. He was just like us. We're just like her. We bear the weight of great sin in all of our lives. Romans 3, verses 9 through 20 says this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? 
No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their past, they ruin and are ruined in misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You see, we are all in the same state as this woman. We are hopeless without Christ. And once we have Christ, we do have hope. But without hope is where we are without Christ. We must remember that. Our state outside of Christ is that we will one day bear the weight of great wrath for our sin. Remembering this will help us to remember that we need a Savior. And if we're in Christ, it will help us remember the need that we have for that great Savior. Paul himself was always in remembrance of, of the sinful man he was and the great Savior, Jesus Christ, who saved him. In 1 Timothy 1, 15-16, he says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of a full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So we all sit in a state of no hope until we meet Christ until he comes and saves us. This woman saw the same hope that Paul saw, saw the same hope that John saw in Christ, God the Son, the hope of eternal life, the hope of being kept by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the same truth that saves us. It's the same truth that has saved many of us. Let that be our hope. Let that be what gets us through our day. You see, as we grow weary in trials of life, we need to taste that living water that is welling up inside of us, that hope of eternal life, the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because we're all filthy sinners who have been given the greatest gift of God the gift of eternal life that is available only in Christ Jesus. Now we're going to dig more into that, but I think that's the place where we stop and we stand. Because in Christ, we have hope. Outside of Christ, we don't. 
And if we're in Christ, there's times in our lives we need to pull upon that hope of, of glory that he has given us, the, the promise of, of salvation, the promise of eternal life in him. And as we pull on that from him, what we begin to see is more joy, more peace, more faith. It grows in our hearts. And we need that. So, let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your love and your mercy and your kindness and goodness towards us. That in Christ we have hope of eternal life. That even the, the, the dirtiest of sinners, even the worst of sinners, has hope in Christ. God, even if it seems like we've got it all together, we know that what we need is we need Christ to be our help and our hope. Help us to lean upon him, the rock of our salvation. Father, if there be any who hear this who do not have that hope, who are, who are outside of, of the love and the peace and the mercy of God, help them to see the need that they have for a great Savior. God, we honor you and praise you this morning for your glory towards us, shown in Christ on the cross, dying for our sins and bearing the full wrath for it, that we may in him have peace and hope. Father, for those who don't know you, let this be a rock in their shoe, that they may not be able to sleep at night until they know fully that they are in Christ. Sinner, you must repent and trust in Christ for the hope of your salvation. Without him, you will suffer eternal punishment. So repent, trust in Christ, cling to him, for he is your only hope. Father, we thank you. We ask for your blessings and your mercy towards us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.